This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. This is Greg Gutfeld. This is the one. My next guest is the great writer Kevin Williamson. He's got a new book out called The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics. Uh, for those people who don't know Kevin Williamson, he's, he's a great writer. You can read his stuff in National Review and also in the New York Post. Um, he was also on Red Eye back in the day, and so I've known him for quite some time. Kevin, how are you? I am well, Greg. What's going on? Nothing. I was, just, I was reading your book, and I came across this phrase, the road to smurfdom. Did you think that that... Were you contemplating that as the title for the book? Uh, no, but I did write an essay called that a couple of years ago, and I've been sort of holding it in reserve to uh, to use again. So it's one of those. It's a good. It's a good line, but you can only use it every couple of years, or else it gets kind of worn out. So yes. um, maybe about three books down from this one, I'll call the road to Smurf. And then you know, I'm going to save this stuff up. Now, the good thing, when, whenever I read your stuff, that I always... Not, by the way, I, that was not a microaggression directed at you, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was, because I am wearing blue, and I am kind of a Smurf. But uh, you know what I like when I read your stuff? Um, I always am introduced to, like, a word that I never heard of that describes a phenomenon that I know of, but I didn't have the word for it. And I'm going to try to pronounce this word, and then you can go ahead and define it, because I think this is what your book is about. Oct. Alacrosity. Alacrosity? No. Go ahead. Stop making me embarrass myself. What's the word? Alacrosity. Alacrosity? Alacrosity. Alacrosity. You know, I can't do it because I think. Yes, but that's. Your book is essentially about kind of this phenomenon as it pertains to social media and Twitter. Am I close? Yeah, that's uh, that's about right. Um, so mob rule or oclocracy is there's an old word for it, which always sounds better if you use the old fancy word. Yeah. <laughs> Although I like I like to use sort of specific terminology because um, well it means a specific thing, and, and mob rule can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Right. So what we're talking about here isn't so much the old phenomenon of you know lynch mobs running amok and doing violence on their own, or um, you know engaging in riots and that sort of thing. Although we do get some of that with the Antifa business and, you know, firebombing college campuses because you don't want Ann Coulter to speak. Because we know Ann Coulter is the most dangerous woman in the world. Right. And, uh, you know, stopping her from talking will justify almost anything. But it's a different species of mob rule that I'm writing about here. Um, and this is when the threat of violence or disorder or other sorts of uh, mob activity is used to bully lawful agencies into behaving the way the mob wants it to. So that's whether it's government or college administration or increasingly a business, uh, especially in its capacity as an employer. So that's what this is about. So this is about, uh, well, you know, we've had this week with uh, Joaquin Castro down here in Texas uh, tweeting out the names and employers and such of uh, people who were Trump supporters in and around San Antonio, where his district is, in order to save the world from the nefarious threat of 
Bill Miller's barbecue mm-hmm. and uh, and various retired uh, real estate agents and things like that. So that's that's what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the phenomenon that we saw with people like Justine Sacco and uh, yeah. James Moore and people like that. And I started writing this book in 2015, and nobody wanted it until I got fired by the Atlantic a couple of years <laughs> later. And then my phone started to ring, and, and the book got sold. So um, when I became a, a minor example of the thing that I was writing about, it apparently made the book more interesting to publishers and such. So um, I've included a lot more autobiography in this book than I like to, because I really don't like writing about myself typically all that much. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it was inevitable and useful. So there was a bit about that stupid episode in there as well. Yeah. So could I, here's a theory. Could, these, could the advent of the social media mob – could you argue that it reduces the chances of a real mob, like it, it, it funnels that energy somewhere else? Or I don't think that's true, but it actually just creates another avenue for weak people to congregate uh, and, and torment people online. Well, I think it, it, you know, it could go either direction, right? So it could give some people an outlet who might otherwise be uh, inclined to join an actual physical mob, or it could help to inspire those actual physical mobs. I certainly think that a lot of the uh, violence we've seen in places like uh, the Bay Area and Portland, Oregon, and things like that, are at least partly enabled and inspired by this uh, social media culture. It's um, because it's transformed the nature of politics. So the, the political discourse we're having right now isn't about policy differences. No one's having these seeping uh, weeping, sobbing, hissy fits over whether the top tax rate is going to be 39% or 34%. It has taken the normal team sports aspect of politics and elevated it until it's really the only thing left in the conversation. So mm-hmm. it's us and them. You're either one of us or you're a Nazi. You're either on our side or you're getting ready to set up death camps yep. and gas chambers and such. And that, of course, um, not only distorts and uh, uh, diminishes political discourse, but it also brings out um, a certain kind of extremism and radicalism in people who've literally become convinced that they are standing up to fascism and standing up to Nazis rather than just beating up uh, people who have different political opinions. Yeah, it's a, and, and it's interesting. You mentioned it in the book, and, I, and other people have brought, brought out, I think there's some research that shows that the Twitter narratives, these, this intense kind of team sport vitriol, is basically driven by a very, very small segment of society. It's a very tiny part of the user base that kind of propels this, um, this, this, this crazy dialogue. Yeah, so Twitter, of course, is relatively small compared to Facebook and some of the other uh, uh, social media services. It's very small compared to things like YouTube. It's influential because of the people who are on it. Twitter tends to be... Uh, used more by relatively affluent, educated people, and especially by journalists and media types and uh, political professionals. So political uh, Twitter can have a real impact on uh, someone if they're a magazine editor or a campaign manager or something like that. Mm-hmm. These people look at Twitter all the time. Uh, most normal people really don't so much. And one of the weird uh, dynamics we see in, in these conversations is there's always um, – there's radicalization that goes on, and radicalization happens in two ways. It happens when people are talking with like-minded people mm-hmm. because there's a sense of wanting to posture and be the person who is the most pure 
right. and, uh, and the most consistent. But it also happens in interactions between people who are of different views. Mm-hmm. So there's no good way to have this conversation. <laughs> um, and what happens is that um, the less histrionic, the less emotional, the less confrontational people tend to drop out of the conversation after a relatively short period of time. So that over time, these conversations become dominated by the most hysterical mm. and angry and emotional elements. So someone actually did a, a study on this, uh, on the Twitter conversation that happened after it was an abortion shooting. Uh, I forget it was Tiller or someone else, mm-hmm. but they actually interacted for, for a period of time after that and, and looked at what happened in the conversation. And people grew, on average, more emotional over time and uh, you know, more angry and more hysterical over time rather than less, which is kind of what you would expect as people uh, talk and exchange views and get to know the other side a little bit and think, well, they disagree with me about this very important issue, but maybe they're not monsters. Maybe they're not Adolf Hitler. Um, but um, unfortunately, that's not what happened. Yeah, and in fact, you're seeing that now this week after these uh, these horrible shootings. Um, there is like it, it is it is now just two teams and one, it's interesting, like the, the football or, the, or the, 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 the equipment in this team sport are the, are the actual shooters. Like the, uh, the, the one in Texas, he was, uh, he was an anti-immigrant, so that's a, that's a point for the left. And then the one in Dayton uh, it was a Liz Warren supporter, so that's a point for the right. So it's, it, it really we – we've, we've entered this world where we can't actually discuss the actual problem. Or the or the phenomenon, it's just whose side are you on, and how? Like I, I'm being told, you know, that by by people that I'm a white supremacist, and it and it's it it's like you know you you cannot have a debate with somebody who already demonizes you, and so we just all go to our separate camps. Yeah, and it's um, it's sort of the transitive property of jackassery, you know. So, well, you're in favor of uh, applying law and order to the border and having. Uh, some control over immigration. This guy was in favor of restricting right. immigration. Therefore, you are the same as the shooter. Exactly. You know, or Elizabeth Warren believes in a bigger, uh, more robust welfare state. Mm-hmm. The guy who shot at these people in Dayton does too, although she's basically morally the same as a shooter. Yeah. As though it were impossible to believe in immigration control and not be someone who thinks you should go massacre people at a Walmart yeah. to make the point. Yeah. Um, Everyone understands this, of course, except for people who are just truly, truly moronic. But there are a lot of cynical and self-serving people in politics who benefit from this kind of discourse. And they also benefit from convincing people that we are always in a state of emergency. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot of what my book goes into and what this goes to, is that if you believe you're in a state of emergency, if you're just five minutes away from the Holocaust, then that justifies a lot of stuff. That justifies violence and dishonesty and... uh, and lies and various kinds of abuse. But if you're not in a state of emergency like that, you're just a basically peaceful and prosperous <laughs> and well-off society full of people who don't see the world exactly the same way. They need to have a debate and an election about it. Well, that you know that doesn't justify that sort of thing. Yeah. And these people want to justify that. It's interesting. It, you just uh, made me think of something. I was doing my story, my segment outlines for the GG show, and I wanted to do uh, a story on there was a, something about Elon Musk and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. They had bit, they were at some uh, forum and they said that this is the best time in the the best time in history to be alive. And I had that in my in my story outline, and then I just got rid of it because I'm going like, 
if I did that story this week, there's going to be a group of people who who are using, you know, this. we are in a state of emergency, will come after me and saying that I am not, you know, I am actually somehow, I don't know, demeaning the tragedy by pointing that out. It's yeah, what happened. That you're saying this is the best time to be alive because people are being shot. Yeah, up. that's exactly. So you have to like be, yeah. you know, and so you just, you know, and you saw what, I mean, obviously, uh, um, people, you know, it, it, we, this is such an emotional time and people do profit off of like this stuff. It's too bad. It's, but it's, it's the way we are now. And, and, um, I, I like a lot of what you, you know, you write about the corporation, and you write about and I mm-hmm. and and I thought that was it's a pretty interesting thing about how we are moving further and further away from the uh, from the idea of the individual. And I was maybe you can expand on that a little. Yeah, well, I write a little bit about the emergence of the business corporation as an instrument of political discipline, right? Which is not an entirely new thing, but it's something that's being certainly exaggerated and amplified in our time in a way that it hasn't. So, you know, companies like, uh, you know, Google and Starbucks and Facebook are recruited um, by the mob to do the mob's bidding so that if you have some unpopular political opinion or if someone in your family has an unpopular political opinion or maybe was standing near someone in a photo, Mm -hmm. um, as in the uh, Covington uh, situation, then then the corporation is hereby deputized to act as the political enforcer and to use employment as the means of enforcement so that if you have non-conforming or unpopular views, you can't work, you can't have an ordinary life, you can't support your family, uh, you have to be someone who is outside of economic life. And this isn't entirely new, but if I were the left, I would think twice about the precedence there because mainly it was used to exclude homosexuals and far leftists, uh, particularly communists, mm-hmm. from public life in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and um, and thereafter. So it's it's very strange to me that progressives who always present themselves as being the alternative to corporate power and the check on the power of the business community and markets should suddenly decide that the internal sensibilities of the Fortune 500 will now define the limits of public discourse, Mm -hmm. that if you can't get past the censors at the HR department at Google, then you're essentially outside of society, that you're some kind of an intellectual outlaw at that point. And that is um, something they are, I think, going to come to regret, even as big business corporations like the East Coast financial companies and the West Coast technology companies become more progressive in their outlook and more Mm -hmm. aggressive in their political stances. That is still something that's likely to come back and, and backfire on both parties, of course, because yeah. if there's one thing we know, it's that you're never woke enough. Right. You know, Google and Facebook will never be progressive enough for the folks on the other side. It's just not going to happen. It'll never happen in a million years. Yeah. And you have, and there's this na- naive belief that if you appease the, I call it the woke dial, uh, it, it's somehow going to spare you. Like if you, uh, right. if, if you can sit there and watch you know, a peer or a fellow comedian get eaten alive. You don't say anything because you just you just don't want to be in. You don't want if you defend him, you, then you, it's like being in the being in the picture with him. Nobody wants to do that. So they all assume that the woke dial will spare them. But inevitably, the woke dial eats everybody. Is that as the what I, it's uh, the analogy with the alligator, the crocodile from I don't know who said that. But uh, sooner or later, they yes. get you. 
eat me last thing. Yeah. Right, yes. I, I think you see that with, um, I think maybe Mark Zuckerberg is a good example of this. I mean, he's someone who I don't think is naturally really all that political. He's not yeah. someone who is obsessed with this stuff, but he's you know, basically a, a person of the left. He's a you know, guy who uh, went to an Ivy League school and works for a California technology company mm-hmm. and is, is progressive. But he'll never be left-wing enough for the people who want to use him and his company for political purposes. Right. And a lot of this, of course, is outcome-based, too. You know, if there had been Russian interference in the 2016 election, but Hillary Clinton had won the election and not Donald Trump, yeah, Facebook would not be public enemy number one on the left. Right. Um, it doesn't have to do with their business practices. It has to do with the fact that they can be scapegoated for a certain outcome. And then that can be used to bully them into taking more aggressive stances in terms of promoting progressive causes and, to some extent, uh, suffocating conservative ones. Mm -hmm. You know, um, is there a strategy uh, that you can think of in terms of fighting fighting the mob, whether it because the the fact is when the mob comes for you, whether it's on social media or elsewhere, um, you don't have a lot of allies. And I've mentioned this phrase. I think I stole it. From somebody uh, sharing the risk that until people start sharing the risk, I think it was Claire Lehman who might have used that phrase first in an interview. And I, it stuck with me. But it's like until we start sharing the risk, this will not end. Everybody will be targeted inevitably. But can people actually share the risk if they think that they're going to lose their job or, or lose their livelihood or career? Well, I think it's really up to institutions uh, to make a difference on this front. And if anyone's ever been through one of these episodes, always knows, of course, you have fewer friends than you thought you did. Yes. And you'll find that out very quickly. Yes. But, you know, I'll say a good word for the New York Times here. So you've seen these mobs come after Brett Stevens or Barry Weiss or yes. mobs from the right coming after Sarah Jong when, uh, when they hired her. Mm-hmm. And the Times has pretty well stood up for itself and said, you know, we hire who we want to hire and we hire them for our own reasons. Yep. And we understand if maybe you don't like them, but then we're not going to fire them because someone called Caitlin22334 mm-hmm. on Twitter mm-hmm. says that we're uh, complicit in rape culture if we don't. We're just not going to do that. Right. And it would be better if more institutions would stand up for themselves that way. Unfortunately, the ones that we really need are the universities, and they're the ones who are the most craven and most unwilling to stand up for their own values and their own principles and their own ability to run their own campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had this conversation with Jeff Goldberg of the Atlantic when he was firing me after yeah. you know, one of these uh, episodes that, um, you know, he was the editor of the Atlantic for a long time, and now Twitter's the editor of the Atlantic. <laughs> and that's that's not going to be good. That's so true. That is so, a terrible and, editor. Yeah, and in fact, I think, that, you know, right now Twitter is controlling a lot of, not just the Atlantic, but a lot of publications and a lot of networks. Uh, and um, it, it's incredible. Yeah, they they are HR. Write a headline the other day. Yeah, they did. They rewrote a New York Times headline. Um, you're yeah. no longer, are you on any social media? You're gone. You're, no, I don't use any social media. That, do you feel – how much better do you feel? Oh, well, I feel pretty good most of the time anyway. Yeah. And, um, I, don't, I don't miss it, I'll say that. So for me, Twitter – and Twitter was the only one I really used. I have Facebook somewhere, I guess, but that was just something that yeah. an employer I used to work for asked us to do. Yeah. So um, Twitter for me was mainly a means of procrastination. Like a lot of writers, I am uh, vulnerable to wanting to procrastinate. Right. And Twitter's great for that because I can sit around at, you know, 7 o'clock in the evening and say, 
someone somewhere has said something stupid. Let me find them. And <laughs> yes. Them around for 30 minutes. Yes. And, um, you know, it's, and it's usually me and some, you know, college sophomore at Texas Tech University or something like that. I always beat on Texas Tech. I should pick a new school to beat on. <laughs> um, and it was a waste of time. It was not a good investment of time on my part. It's not a very good investment of energy, I think, in general. And one of the nice things about being a writer in the digital age is that you know down to the number how many people have read a story of yours. Yeah. And so not using Twitter to promote my work hasn't had any effect on my readership. Um, in fact, my readership is, has grown a little bit since the time when I was using Twitter more regularly or using it regularly at all. So I don't think it's a very good investment. Now, maybe it's a good investment for some other people. I mean, I happen to have my affiliation with National Review, so I've got a website that millions of people look at, and I can communicate uh, if I need to through that avenue. But um, so to that extent, I don't think it was a good investment for me, and I certainly don't miss it because it's a sewer. It really is. It brings (laughs) out the worst in people. It brings out the worst in good people. I never brought up the worst in me. I don't accept myself from that by any stretch of the imagination. I agree. I uh, I don't like me on Twitter. I don't like anybody. In fact, people I really like, I like less on Twitter. And it's just and, and it and it, I I agree it has no impact whatsoever on anything that I want to sell and if anything I'm putting in, in I'm putting information out there for free that could end up harming me I mean I'm actively feeding a beast that could fire me for no payback for no payoff it makes no sense yeah. and I say that while I, and the only reason why I don't get off it is while I have 1.2 million followers that's like giving wow. up some kind of commodity. Like if I walk away, that's it. That's bigger than mo- than the circulation of Stuff Magazine when I was editing it. You know, <laughs> so it's like, what am I thinking? Anyway, yeah, what, I mean, what? you can sell that one of these days. The only exception to that, of course, is Wendy's, which is better on Twitter than yes, it's, it's, they are. They they have good Twitter game, and it's better than their Square Burgers. So, yeah. Kevin, uh, um, okay. congratulations on your new book. Um, it's a delight. It's a, it's heady stuff. You have a lot of quotes and a lot. By the way, Kevin, you have a lot of footnotes, and I try to avoid footnotes, but then I end up having to read your damn footnotes because you usually have something in there that's pretty good. So yeah. I, uh, you're forcing me to eat my vegetables. They're also the most profane footnotes yes. resumes ever published. Yes. It's usually the most profane book resumes ever published. It was a borderline unpublishable book. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, I think, and there's some splenetic stuff in it. I think it works the way it's written, but it's not um, it's not your typical, you know, conservative yeah. uh, pundit-type book. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, it's, a, um, it's definitely a worthy cause to write about, Kevin. It's called The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics. Always a pleasure, Kevin. You too, Greg. Talk to you soon. See ya. Bye. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.